Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. I'm just messing with you. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to In The Sticks, a podcast about something, nothing, and everything all at once. Hope you're having a fantastic week. Uh, there is a Tiger King reference in this show today. We'll get there eventually. But we'll, we'll start where we left off last week. We talked a little bit about trying to save money by redesigning our planes. We were over the moon as far as our budget was concerned. We were way up there in cost for the price of the build. So we knew we were going to have to make some cuts to save some money. We talked a lot about the lumber package and how it was marked up at least 100% from normal prices. Our lumber package came in at $70,000 when it was originally anticipated to come in around thirty-five, or it would have been during normal, normal circumstances. So we talked about saving some money there. Um, ultimately, our goal was to save money in square footage. So... To give you an example, we cut off 600 square feet. Now, if we were building our house at $150 a square foot, which that's not what it's going to cost to build, but if it was costing $150 a square foot to build and we cut off 600 feet, then we would be saving $90,000. That's a huge chunk. That's the kind of chunk we were looking for, and that's why we decided to reduce the square footage overall of the house. So we did that. We took off 600 square feet. We resubmitted our plans to the builder, and I think it worked. I think we are really close to our target budget, and hopefully we can sign a contract this week. We're still trying to iron out some issues with the bank, and I'll talk about that stuff in a minute. But there were there were other areas that we that we saved a little bit of money. For instance, with the way that the house was designed before, and I think I talked about this on the last show, with the upstairs running completely from one side of the house to the other, from the front to the back, there was no way to run the air duct system from one side of the house to the other. So we had to have two heat and air systems so that we could efficiently heat and cool the entire house. Well, with the redesign, we were able to run the air duct system from one side to the other, and we're able to use one unit to efficiently heat and cool the whole house because we reduced the square footage. So that in and of itself is going to save us uh, probably between ten dollars and $12,000. We were also originally going to do a fiberglass pool. I know I talked about this last time. We decided to go ahead and go with a liner pool. That's going to save us about $12,000. So we had some really big chunks, including the square footage, that we were able to take away from the first design. We resubmitted the plans with the second design. Like I said, I think we are where we need to be. We're excited that we're probably going to sign a contract this week and get the build process started. Um, So our next step is to sign paperwork with the bank. And we have been going back and forth on a two-time construction loan close versus a one-time construction loan close. So... The difference is, is if you do a two-time close on a construction loan, you basically get an estimate from the builder. You submit your, your plans uh, with the builder's estimate to the bank. They give you the money that you need to build the house, and you close on the construction loan. At the end of the process, they assess the value of your home. You have to reapply for a final for a mortgage, right? And so... You're, you have two closings, and so you're going to pay, with the two-time close, you're going to pay an additional three or $4,000 because you have to close twice. You close on the construction loan, and then you close on the mortgage. 
with a one-time close, they do everything up front. They, you send your plans in uh, along with the, um, the builder's estimate for how much it's going to cost to build the house. You send everything into the banking. You close one time on the loan. So you consolidate one of the closings, and you save a little bit of money in the closing costs. Now, one of the pitfalls of a single-time close is that's it. When you close that one time, that's what you're stuck with. So to give you an example of where this could be a disadvantage if you're considering this is let's say that you are planning on spending $400,000 to build a house. You get your loan for $400,000 and that's it. That's what you have to build your home. So let's say when everything is said and done, you made some upgrades along the way, something went wrong, and it cost you a little bit extra money to fix it. That price gets added to your loan. So, it, you know, your original loan was for $400,000, but you had $15,000 extra in costs building the house just because of stuff that's come up along the way. Well, now you're on the hook for that $15,000 out of pocket, right? So that's something that you have to be extremely careful of. We were talking to our builder, and he, and he'll tell you 99 times out of 100, people come in over cost when they build their house. It's very, very rare that somebody will come in at or below cost. So if you do a one-time close, you're almost guaranteed to have to pay money out of pocket to make up any difference. And if your budget is tight as it is, then you might have to beg, borrow, and steal to come up with that extra money at the end that you owe the builder. Now, one of the ways that the bank will get around this is, let's say our builder tells us it's going to cost $400,000 to build the house, they will require the builder to add 10% to the build price. So instead of it being $400,000, it's going to be $440,000. So there's a little bit of wiggle room there. If something goes wrong and there's extra money added to the cost of the build, there's, there's that buffer that's built into the loan so you don't owe anything out of pocket. You know, what we talked about with our builder is that any change orders that we have will be done up front. I don't think we'll have any unless we come across something that we absolutely don't like. We shouldn't have any change orders in our process, but if we do, then we will pay for that change order up front. Another thing that you have to be careful of with the one-time close, so with, with the two-time closing, they come in and they, appraise, they reappraise the house uh, after the construction is complete. So your final monthly payment and your final loan amount is going to be based off of that final appraisal when you close on the house. So that's, you know, like I said, your monthly payment is going to be based off of that. With a one-time close, everything's set in the beginning, right? So if you have that $400,000 bill, you add the 10%, so it's $440,000 one-time close loan, then your monthly payment is going to be based off of that $440,000. So if you build, let's say you come in right on budget, you're right at $400,000, that extra $40,000 is cash in hand, but you're still paying a monthly mortgage payment based on a $440,000 house. So if you're looking for a lower monthly payment, then you have to be careful. Now, with our bank, we have the advantage of recasting our monthly payment. So let's say... Um, for demonstrative purposes, we we come in right at four hundred thousand dollars. We have that that extra forty thousand buffer that we had built in. We can now take that money, put it back into the down payment, and then we can pay a two hundred and fifty dollar fee with our bank 
to have the monthly payment recast so that it's it's based on the actual value of the home and not the value of the loan that we took out. That's something that if you're going to do a one-time close with your bank, that's something that you need to get in writing in the beginning before you ever close is that they will recast your payment based on the value of the home. Because if, you, if you're building an expensive home and you add that 10% buffer, then you're going to be paying extra money for 30 years based on the amount of the loan you pulled out and not the, the value of the home itself. So that's something that you got to be really careful about. That, that is something, you know, I said we're waiting on some minor issues to get ironed out with our bank before we sign the contract. That's one of them. I want that in writing because they told us they could do it but we're not going to do it unless we can get in writing because I don't want to be paying extra every month on my house when that extra money is above the value of the house, if that makes sense. So that's one thing to be careful about. If you don't have a lot of wiggle room, if you're tight on your budget, I would definitely suggest a two-time close. I would save up a little bit of extra money so that you can afford the closing cost for two closings as opposed to just one. And also make sure that you have some saved up for change orders. That way, if something comes up and you have to pay 1500 extra bucks for X, Y, and or Z, you have that money ready ready to go. Um, but if you, do, if you do a one-time closing, then just be aware of those things that we talked about so that you don't get yourself hemmed up. You don't want to go way over budget and wind up having to pay a lot of money out of pocket, and then you might not have enough to put 20% down. You wind up with a PMI on your mortgage, and you're stuck with that until you have 20% equity in your home. So those are some things to think about if you're considering building a house or if you're in the process of building a house. Um, you know, like I said, we plan on saving money along the way. Um, we're going to stick with the budgeted amount. We didn't pull too much off uh, other than those big chunks we talked about. But like for flooring, for instance, um, we have a flooring allowance at $6 a square foot. That includes $3 a square foot for labor and install. So if we go out there and we find a tile that's $2 a square foot, you add the $3 labor to that, you're looking at $5 a square foot. That's an extra dollar a square foot that we're saving. doesn't sound like a lot, but when you consider the house is 2,700 square feet, that's 2,700 bucks that we're saving right there. So, you know, it's the same way um, with, like, the, the appliance allowance, right? If you can find appliances that you like, that you're happy with, and you don't spend the entire amount that you're allotted for appliances, you save a little bit of money there too. I think we'll be good to go when it comes to that stuff because uh, my wife is very particular when it comes to certain things. We're going to have everything picked out before we start the build, and so I think we're going to have a good idea of where, we, where we're sitting. So I think we'll be able to come in right at the estimated build cost. I think we're going to surprise our builder, at least I hope we are. The only thing that we're concerned about really is, is if something catastrophic happens, like Let's say we're, we're running the water from the well out to the new construction location and the well collapses. Well, now we have to dig a new water well, and that's going to be fairly expensive, but we have that buffer built in exactly for that reason. Um, another issue that we could possibly run into is right now we're on septic. We're moving, you know, 100 yards down the hill. They do a soil sample down there. They might discover that we can't do a septic system down there, and it has to be anaerobic instead. Well, again, we have that buffer built in because the anaerobic system is going to cost probably twice as much as the septic system and an additional like $6,000. So, you know, those are the things that we're really hoping to avoid, but we've got that cushion built in just in case. Another thing that we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and pay off the balance on the our two vehicles. We're paying on both of our vehicles right now, but 
we have enough to go ahead and pay off what we owe on both of those vehicles. So we're going to go ahead and do that. That gives us an extra about $950 a month in liquidity. So we're building a bigger house. Um, it's going to cost more uh, per month to you know on our mortgage than our last house because it's bigger and newer and all that good stuff. So um, having that extra liquidity every month is going to help with that. And moving forward, we'll just buy one new car at a time. You know, we have two car payments right now. From this point forward, we'll just have one at a time. So that's one of the adjustments that we're going to make in our lifestyle to make this new house more more affordable. So, um, you know, not a big deal. We can do that easily. So those are some of the things, you know, I, I think the most important thing is really study your finances. Ask a lot of questions, especially when it comes to lending and the price of the build and all that kind of good stuff. Do your research and make sure you don't get yourself in a position where you close on the loan and all of a sudden you're you're financially in a situation where you're you're struggling to get by. The last thing that you want to have to do is immediately sell your house cuz you can't afford it or make sacrifices that you didn't in initially intend on having to make um because the house wound up costing more to build or your monthly payment wound up being more than you thought it would be. I think it's better to get yourself situated before you ever even start the build and get financially stable and have things figured out so that there are no surprises in the long run. And my wife and I have done a good job at that, and we're ready to go. Hopefully we can sign a contract tomorrow and get the process started. So um, I think one of our saving graces might be the fact that it's taking so long right now (laughs) to get funding to come through at the banks because there's a shortage of appraisers. If we sign a contract tomorrow, it's going to still be another six to eight weeks before... Uh, the funding comes through from the bank because of the shortage of appraisers. So we're really looking at not getting to the framing stage of the house until three or four months down the road from now. So, you know, with a little bit of luck, maybe the lumber package will come down a little bit more between now and then, and we can save even more money there. So we'll see what happens. We'll keep you updated. I'll let you know for sure if we get our contract signed and, and what we're looking at as far as time frame to get the funding. And, We'll, uh, we'll get this building party started. Before we move on, just keep in mind, I'm, I'm not a CPA. I'm not an attorney, so none of this should be considered legal or financial advice. I'm just offering my opinion based on what we've experienced so far throughout the process. So, you know, last week I talked about how we had a pretty significant ice storm. In fact, when I'm done recording this, I'm going to go outside and continue to trim branches and limbs that have snapped and try to get them out to the curb. I think I mentioned last time that we were still on city trash pickup. And so one of the benefits to that is they are going to send the contracted cleanup crew by our house to pick up any storm damage debris that we have. So I've got to get out there and get working on the trees again to get all that debris out to the curb so that they can come pick it up. But this Saturday, we had another weather event that kind of took us by surprise. We had a a big gust front move through. There was no weather with it. It was just a cold front, but the winds were howling, man. They were blowing like crazy, and we heard a lot of banging and crashing and that kind of stuff, but we couldn't really see what was going on because it was pretty pretty dark outside. But in the morning, uh, about 7 o'clock in the morning, the kids come pounding on the door, and this is is Sunday morning, so we're trying to sleep in, of course, and we're like, go away! They were like, no, the chicken coop blew away. And, of course, you know, we were like, oh, crap. So <laughs> so we got up and looked outside, and sure enough, the, the chicken run had 
flipped completely over and was sitting on its top. And the chicken coop has an automatic door opener on it. So the automatic door opened and the chickens were just out there free ranging in the field. And the kids were actually able to round up four of the five of them and get them back inside the coop and close the coop door. But there's one chicken, Sparkles. Uh, She's kind of a bitch. That's why I have dubbed her that bitch Carol Baskin. Because she's a giant pain in our ass. <laughs> so we chased her around for a long time. She She's the one that the kids couldn't corral. And for being such a stupid animal, she was actually pretty smart staying away from us. She would she would entrench herself in the thick underbrush, and we couldn't get to her. And finally, we just gave up. <laughs> we just said, you know what the heck with it? She'll come back eventually, right? She's going to come back to the food source. So, so we, my wife and I were able to tip the chicken run back onto its base and um you know it was it was broken i built it so no big surprise there it didn't didn't hold up to the the topple too well but it wasn't too bad the door broke and some of the support sections broke uh made a quick trip up to the hardware store i was able to fix the door first and after i fixed the door i let the the rest of the chickens out inside the run and while I was fixing the support sections that had broken, uh, Carol Baskin had made her way back to the chicken coop, and she decided that she wanted to be back inside with all of her lady friends. So I opened the door, she came right back in, I finished chicken the coop, and now all is well. Um, they're out there happily roaming through the run, eating the seed, and we didn't lose any chickens, which is good. Blue did kill a possum this week. I came home from work one morning, and there was a dead possum inside of his dog run. Didn't try to eat it. He just killed it and left it. I think he was trying to send a message to other possums, but uh, I may ruin that for him. I picked it up with a stick and threw it over the fence. I intended on going back out there later that evening and, and disposing of it, but I kind of forgot, and I came back the next morning to do it, and nature had taken care of that for me. So um, all is good. Blue protected his domain, so he's feeling pretty good about himself. Chickens are happy, and we're we're rolling right along. So I listened to a podcast last night, and the podcast that I was listening to had a a guest on there. Her da- her name is Laura Denardis, and she wrote a book called "The Internet and Everything: Freedom and Security in a World with No Off Switch." And it was actually really quite interesting. Uh, she discussed how we used to have these silos between us, you know, human beings and technology, and they each had had its own lane. But now there's the line between them is really blurred. Uh, there's so much overlap. In fact, almost quite literally, when you have pacemakers that connect to Wi-Fi to send reports to doctors, or you know, you you wear devices on your wrist at night that track your sleeping behavior and stuff like that. Um, and she basically talked about how our lives are being run by technology right now. It's really, it was really quite interesting. It made me start thinking about the internet of things and how I think that's a huge contributor to what we're looking at right now in our country. The internet of things, if you're not familiar with it, IOT, it's the integration and the interconnectedness of our lives and technology. So you carry around your smartphone with you all day, and it's got GPS software on it that tracks your every movement, right? You may have gotten in your car one morning to go to work, and something will pop up on your phone screen that says, 
you know, 13 minutes to work. It's because you've driven to work several times. Your cell phone, without you prompting it, has learned that um, you're going you're going to work, and that is your destination. And, and now they're telling you it's going to take you 13 minutes to get there. And your phone that you have with you all the time is connected to your smart device, your Alexa, your Google Home, your whatever. And so when you when you're at home and you're cooking dinner and you run out of butter and you say, hey, Alexa, add butter to the shopping list, it adds it to the list, which syncs with your phone. And it's also connected, you know, your smart device is connected to your TV. So you can have your smart device turn on your TV or turn on the lights in your house. And then you get into your car to go to work. It'll tell you how to get to work. And all the while, big tech is tracking all this stuff, right? They, they're data mining all of the information that you input into technology, and then they gear everything towards you. The social media, if you're shopping on Alexa, it's going to, or I'm sorry, if you're shopping on um, Amazon, it's going to recommend certain items for you. If you're scrolling through your social media feeds, it's going to come up with an advertisement for something that you're looking for, and that always creeps me out because it's not like something that I search on my phone. It might be, might be something <clears throat> that I say to my wife, hey, we need to get one of these. And then next thing I know, it's popping up on social media. It's, it's really quite creepy. But when you think about it, if you, if you are someone whose political beliefs lean a little bit left and you get on, let's say, Twitter... Obviously, you have the people that you follow, and you might follow uh, CNN and Fox News, and so you kind of have a dichotomy there in where your information is coming from. However, it's going to recommend to you that you follow these other people who might share some of the same ideas that you have, and it's going to feed you news stories that might share some of the ideas you you have. So if you're left-leaning, it might share news stories about how Donald Trump still has not conceded the election and how COVID-19 is spreading and we need lockdowns and uh, and all this stuff. But then if you're right-leaning, right, if you're more conservative-leaning in your political beliefs, then it's it might share stories about rigged elections or it might share stories about Antifa members assaulting people at the MAGA march um, over the weekend. And so not only are do you have those beliefs in your head, but now social media and big tech are reinforcing those beliefs, maybe even sending you more to the right or more to the left with the information that they're feeding you uh, because you're you're reading more and more stories about how these peaceful protesters are being assaulted by Antifa or you're reading more and more stories about how much damage uh, Donald Trump is doing to this country by failing to concede the election. And so you get more entrenched in your beliefs and that's what's driving a wedge between us. And I thought that the podcast was really interesting, and it brought up a really good point, and it's something that I talked about on the last podcast, and that is we, you know, for whatever reason, we we hate people that have opposing viewpoints. I I say we, I'm not saying you, I'm not saying me, but in this country as a whole, there's this huge wedge that has been driven between us, and I think it's propagated by social media and big tech by feeding you this information— that is suited exactly to what your beliefs are, thus distancing you even further from the other side of the argument. And that's a really bad thing. I don't know if you've seen The Social Dilemma on Netflix, but it's extremely interesting. You should give it a view. It's, uh, I don't know, it's like an hour and a half long or something, but it's worth the watch. And it talks about kind of some of the same stuff. 
And that's a huge problem. I talked about it last time. We should be able to have opposing viewpoints but still be civil, still have conversation. I have friends who, obviously I'm a conservative. I, I like to consider myself a moderate conservative, but a conservative nonetheless. And I have friends who are liberal-leaning, and we're able to have you know friendly banter about the issues, but we're still friends, and we still get along, and we still hang out, and that's how it should be. And that's how it should be in politics as well, just like I said last time. We should be able to have opposing viewpoints, but still be able to find some common ground so that we can make the best policies for, for everyone. And, you know, one of the craziest things that I'm seeing right now is this whole thing with Vince Vaughn. You know, there's a quote-unquote viral video about him shaking the president's hand. And he's now catching a lot of grief from his Hollywood brethren and sisters who are getting on to him for being friendly with the president. Well, you know what? I can tell you right now that if Joe Biden is elected officially and inaugurated on January 20th, and I have the opportunity to shake his hand, I'll do it. That's the leader of the free world, the president of the United States of America. Who's going to turn down an opportunity to shake his hand? But by saying, you shouldn't shake his hand, he's evil, he's orange man bad. Well, that that's what the problem is. No, that is all wrong. On so many levels, we have to work together. We have to work together to find the common good. So, you know, as far as that goes, my advice to you would be put down your devices. I mean, if you can get off social media, get off social media. Or, at the very least, set some boundaries, right? You come home from work, and a lot of people like to have that decompression period after they get off work, right? They get home and they take 30 to 45 minutes to themselves, Drink a, you know, a, a barley pop or maybe a cold glass of water. Scroll through their social media. Maybe check their personal email. Watch the news for a little bit. Whatever. You have that decompression time, that you time. Use that up. But then when it comes to, to family time, put that stuff away. Put your phone away. Spend time with your family. Don't bring your phone to bed. <laughs> um, if you're checking your news feed late at night, which I'm guilty of, um, but after, after watching The Social Dilemma and after listening to that podcast last night, that's an adjustment that I'm going to try to make because those things start to weigh on you. So minimize that effect and pay attention to your surroundings a little bit more. Have productive conversations with people that have a, opposing viewpoints. Try to see their side of the, the story and try to get them to see your, your side of the story. I mean, that's how this stuff works, right? In an ideal situation anyways. I guess the point to all that is we can't, you know, you have to expand your source of information. If you only watch CNN, try watching Fox News. If you only read Politico News, try reading the Daily Wire. That way you get both sides of the story. As far as I, I can tell, you know, major news outlets like CNN and MSNBC have either completely ignored or only very minimally covered what's going on in Washington, D.C. after the pro-Trump rallies there. But if you go to the Daily Wire or if you go to Fox News, they cover it quite a bit. And it's, it's actually really disgusting. These people went to Washington, D.C. To, to support the president, just like people went to D.C. in 2016 to support Hillary Clinton. The exact same situation, but these supporters of the president are getting assaulted by Black Lives Matter protesters and Antifa protesters. And literally assaulted 
Um, a woman punched another woman in the back of the head. Just sucker punched her right in the back of the head. A young couple was eating dinner. They got liquid poured on them and they had to leave. Um, there was a group eating dinner at a restaurant and some Antifa members came up and threw fireworks under their table. I mean, that's disgusting behavior and it's not being addressed by the national media and it should be because that's the kind of stuff that needs to... If we can get that aspect out of politics, then we might be more productive. All right, I want to stop talking about politics. Um, there's some really good news coming out of the pharmaceutical industry over the weekend. Um, Pfizer, uh, partnered with BioNTech, released a um, vaccination for COVID-19 that's 90% effective. And that's huge, huge news. Uh, also, last night, uh, early this morning, Moderna announced that they have developed a vaccine that is 94% effective through clinical trials. That's huge. And between the two of them combined, they think that they can have 70 million dosage units by the end of the month, which would inoculate 35 million people. Um, that, I, I can't tell you how happy I'm about that because, you know, coronavirus, it's a real thing. It's really hurting our country right now. It's hurting the world, uh, but our country in particular. And having a vaccination that is effective will help us get back on our feet from an economic standpoint, from a productivity standpoint, and just from a human standpoint. <laughs> uh, we won't be hermits locked up in our houses anymore if we can get if we can get these vaccines mass-produced and pushed out to the public to where we don't have to worry about coronavirus any more than we worry about the flu or the common cold. So that is really, really big news um, coming out of the pharmaceutical industry over the weekend. Also, Dustin Johnson is your 2020... Uh, Masters champion. Uh, it was 540 some odd days since the last uh, Masters championship when Tiger Woods won. Due to the pandemic, it got pushed from being the first major of the year to the last major of the year. Dustin Johnson won it in historic fashion, the only person to ever reach 20 strokes under par. So congratulations to DJ. Job well done. We'll be back in Augusta in 140 days for the next Masters. So uh, the countdown starts for that. And to cap things off, um, our dumb criminal of the week, Klaus Schmidt, tried to rob a bank in Berlin by walking in with a pistol and demanding money. So far, this is pretty standard for a bank heist. However, as the robbery progressed, the bank employees noticed that the criminal was acting strangely. At one point, one of them asked the robber if he needed a bag, and he replied, You're damn right, it's a real gun! Well, this made the clerks realize that Schmidt had a noticeable handicap. He was deaf. Taking advantage, one employee set off the alarm. Schmidt remained oblivious. Even while the incredibly loud alarm was going off and the police approached the bank, the robber remained calm and patient, occasionally spouting some veiled threats. When the police arrived, they quickly took the criminal into custody. However, Schmidt tried to turn the negative into a positive, and he tried to sue the bank for exploiting his disability. He was not successful, and he went to prison for robbing a bank. So that's your dumb criminal of the week, folks. It's been a pleasure. I enjoy doing this. I hope you enjoyed it. This is In The Sticks Podcast. Love one another. Embrace the opposing point of view. That's the only way we move forward. I'll see you next week. God bless you. God bless America. America.